0: Father, we do want to put our hands out in front of us and be willing to give uh, the best of what you've given us away, that we wouldn't want to hold on to anything, um, certainly not at a church level or an individual level, and so we just commit all of this to you. We ask that you'd speak to us this morning, that you'd challenge us, that you'd help us in some small way to loosen our grip on the fears and the worries and the concerns of this life, uh, and to be able to trust and follow and take your hand just a little bit better um, this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we were on the second half of doing a a quick spin through the book of Jonah. So if you want to find Jonah, uh, please do. Uh, It's in the Old Testament It's only four small chapters, so it's easy to kind of lose. It's after Amos. Uh, So if you just kind of turn to the right of Amos, you'll you'll get Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. If you hit Micah, you've gone too far. And last week, just by way of recap, we talked about the first two chapters. And the idea that God had called Jonas and wanted Jonas to go uh, up to the north and to preach Uh, and and to warn this city of Nineveh that God's impending judgment was going to come. And Jonah didn't want to do this, and so he boarded a ship. The ship went, and God chased Jonah, literally chased him, disrupts the ship to the point where uh, they cast lots. They asked Jonah, what's going on? Who are you? Uh, Why is this happening? And, And Jonah's backed into this corner, where there's just really no way out and, and he probably doesn't see any light at the end of the tunnel resigns himself to that fact they throw him overboard and in that prayer he talks about going literally to the depths and being you know, as low as you can possibly get you know underneath the sea seaweed wrapped around his forehead when God catches him and takes him now back in the direction of what God's call was for his life And in that, you get a a wonderful prayer or song of Jonah of salvation and deliverance and the goodness of God, uh, the patience of God. And one of the things we were wrestling with last week is this idea of um, worship happens best when it's either a cry for deliverance or a response to deliverance. Does that make sense? Worship happens best when you're at your utter end and you're crying out, as it were, to God. Or you've cried out to God, God has answered, He has redeemed you, and you're now celebrating that. One of the most picturesque picturesque instances of worship in the, the Old Testament is after the Israelites come across the Red Sea. And Moses' uh, sister with a tambourine, and there's dancing, and there's music. I mean, and it's this party party. Uh, of celebration to God because he has brought them through and delivered them and so one of the things I think we have to ask ourselves with worship is are we really aware of our, our deepest needs I mean are we really taking this and turning it to God in song or or in, 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 in our cry um, and then secondly as God delivers us is he putting a new uh, a new song in your mouth Like Psalm 40, you've lifted me up out of the pit and you've put a new song in my mouth. Worship happens best either when it's a cry or a response. Worship happens best when it's an authentic cry or we're singing God's song. And so I think for me, I keep wrestling all week with this idea of what is the song that God has put in my mouth? Um, Is God putting a song in my mouth? Am I looking for God to put a song in my mouth? Or is worship just becoming a routine? And so we go through chapter 2 and we see Jonah's uh, Jonah's prayer. And then we get to chapter 3 and we'll pick it up there. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. I mean, it's a pretty serious fast when, when you apply it to your, your animals. Right? I mean, who's ever done that? You know, no, the cat's going to go without too. This is serious business. Goldfish get nothing. Um, we're all praying to the Lord. Right? I mean, it's, just like, it's funny to me. Um, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows... God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And here's the interesting kind of turn. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And the picture here for me is, like, um, I, I mean, how many of you guys, like, when you're teenagers, you know, had pyromaniac friends? You know, I, I had this whole group of friends that were crazy vandals, right? Um, but, you know, blow thi- you know, the kind of, like, guys that, like, blow things up, right? I mean, if you picture one of those guys and he's creating, like, this great thing of destruction he's going to do... And, he, and he's got it all rigged, and then he, he wants to kind of blow it up, and it doesn't blow up. I mean, picture that guy, right? You know who I'm talking about that you knew growing up? And, it, and it's not blowing up. That's what I picture here with Jonah. I mean, he's put a lot of time and energy into, into talking about doom on, you know, for the city. He's preached judgment. He wants judgment. He's anticipated judgment. And, and he's kind of, now all of a sudden, God's kind of remo- uh, removed the fuse from it. It's not going to blow up. And he's left with this kind of pent-up emotion of unfulfilled pyromaniac desires. And it's a really interesting thing. So Jonah is greatly displeased, and he becomes angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. You want to know the number one reason why we don't obey God? Because we already know what that means and we're not willing to accept it. One of the reasons we don't obey is because we lack faith and and we don't trust and we can't see. The other reason we don't obey is because we already know and we already do see and we already get it and we just flat go, I can't not going to. If I give you my life, I know you're going to send me somewhere else, so I'm not going to give you my life. If I gave this up, I know that I would lose some measure of control or pleasure or or it would cost me my social network. I know it would, so I'm not going to give it up. I know that if I stopped gossiping about this person and slandering this person and Judging this person and kind of joining in on that, that I'd probably have to realize they're a person with feelings, and I'd have to probably go to them and say I'm sorry and make amends and reconcile. And I really don't want to do that because I just don't like that person. And so I'm not going to go down that path of obeying you guys because I already know where it's going to lead me, and I'm not willing to go there. So one half of our lack of obedience really is because we're scared of the unknown. The other half? Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? And that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. You know, your problem, God, is your character. It's dependable, and it's wrong. And I I have issues with it. Other than that problem, we're okay, God. And I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, and God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So here, Jonah now has come back again to a place of resigning himself to dying first time he resigns himself to dying as he's running from God and, and God is destabilizing the circumstances now he's obeying God God is working through the circumstances and Jonah says it's better for me to die there's probably a thousand ways I could go with that part right there and I don't know that we're even gonna touch it today but it's fascinating to me in that moment how clear it is that, that Jonah is saying, God, you either serve my will or I literally don't want to go on living. I'm so committed to seeing it a certain way or, or, or committed to my way that when you're going to work through the circumstances to accomplish your will, that I'm just going to bow out and I'm going to sign off and I'm going to opt out. I'm just so not okay harmonizing with who you are, what you do, and what your will is. But all of that wrapped in some very high and mighty spiritual-sounding Self-flattering language. Woe is me, I'm undone. It it sounds like spiritual language. I just can't do it anymore, God, with all due respect. It's like I'm, I'm signing off and quitting God in talking to God. You know what I mean? We usually sign off and quit God by not talking to God. When you sign off and quit God when you're talking to him, it's kind of this weird form of pride. That you get going. And, and Jonah does this. And it's a really fascinating thing. And so I think when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, listen, you disciples have watched me pray now for all this time. And you're finally asking me how you should pray. I'll tell you how you should pray. Here's how it starts. Let me give you the type, the the form, the symbol of prayer. That really kind of maps out what it would look like or what it should look like. This is here to, here to... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your name be set apart. It's your name, your fame, your glory that starts the whole thing, centers the whole thing that I'm recognizing right now. Our first value at Antioch is to be Christ centered for this reason. If anything doesn't start with God at the center, we get quickly out of balance, like, you know, on the spin cycle when. My wife puts the towels, too many towels. It's always too many towels. Um, and, the, and then it starts buzzing and you know what I'm talking about? But anything that doesn't start on God. And so Jesus is like, get this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's about you and your glory and your plan. And then the next part is your will be done <clears throat> on earth as it is in heaven that That your will that happens in in heaven belongs on this earth too. That you're the king and you deserve for your kingdom to reflect kind of those values. That your will is what is made known and acted on and lived out throughout the realm that belongs to you. That that's what happens. And that we join in that. And then he goes on and says, forgive us our debts. Because why? None of us are innocent. None of us. Daniel's prayer, if you go to the book of Daniel, always challenges me because he's a a little dude when they get carted off to exile, but you see him as this great saint later uh, praying in his window, and he gets thrown in the lion's den for praying to his God. But you see some of his prayers, and he's always saying, forgive us. Forgive us. And he's saying, I'm a part of the problem. I'm not immune from the problem. I'm not neutral, and the problem is over there. Um, Solzhenitsyn said, you know, the the line between good and evil goes right down the heart of every man and every woman. It's it's not this myth of neutrality where I stand on the good part and the bad part's over there. And God forgive them their sins. That's what the Pharisee prayed, and then the humble man in the street, when Jesus said, pray like him, he's beating his breast and he's saying, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this. I'm culpable. I'm tied up with humanity. And frankly, if I'd been born in a different time and a different place, I could have been very easily capable of the greatest of injustices that, that are known to man. I, I could have done those things. I could have gone with the herd. I could have been scared in Nazi Germany and kept silent from fear. I, I'm 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 a part of the problem. Got that? (laughs) G.K. Chesterton, when he was asked to write an essay on the the question, what is wrong with this world? It's kind of one of these classic tales that you always hear, but he wrote back and he just said, you know, in response to your question, um, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. We necessarily have to lay down our wills and follow God's will. Oswald, Sand, uh, Oswald Chambers said this, Beware, of, going to the funer- um, beware of, of not being willing to go to the funeral of your own independence. Beware of being not willing to go to the funeral of your own independence. And so here you see Jonah, he knows God, he's, he's in the service of God, but in his heart, he's not serving God. We're all here in church, all of us today. We're here, we're here for a reason. We come, we're all in some sense in the service of God, but God only knows in our hearts when we walk out of here, When we make our decisions, when we steer our life, when we make our choices, are we serving him? Or are we still independently committed to self even though we're in the service of God? Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. So Jonah says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replies... Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter. And he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. So this is like sitting outside a reading. You know what I mean? 112 in the sun, you know, And so there's a vine to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. The Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? Three things. First one, change. God moves. God has a will. God leads into the future. God has compassion. God redeems. God reconciles. God pursues, God changes, and God uses us to serve his will. Life is always going to be in flux. There will always be change. What I mean by this is Jonah's call was complete. He didn't get off it when he was supposed to get off it. He did his job and and God answered and he should have had a new song and he should have celebrated. And then the next thing should have been, God, what's next? Instead, Jonah goes to a good vantage point and says, maybe yet there will be some fireworks. Let's wait and see. And he camps there and he won't get off and move on to the next thing. He's not willing to accept the change of plans. He's not willing to walk with God. He's kind of in a box and he's going to stay static even though God is now on to the next thing doing something amazing and Jonah could be right there along with him partaking of it and Jonah is locked into a paradigm and he's unwilling to change his paradigm. Got a friend that's been using this phrase with me, and and it was coming up this morning. This idea of terminal endings. We don't let things end. I mean, uh, that 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 show hoarders is is all about this, right? We don't bring things to an end very well. We don't like to cut off options. We don't like to change. We don't like to risk. We don't like to move on. We don't like to say goodbye. and we, we kind of get stuck. Even on the back end of being used by God, we can get stuck. And the idea here is the first thing out of three is you've got to be okay with change. My kids, I'm watching this behavior, and it, I've kind of started to realize, you know, you can, if you can identify a behavior in kids, you're guaranteed to see the same behavior in adults just wrapped up in different clothing. Okay, so my kids, it's like this way. They won't let go of things. I want the iPad. Not a book. Not, not you know, to play with. I want the iPad in the car. And not that iPad. I want the other iPad. You know what I mean? Like, and if I don't get it, I'm going to pitch a fit. I don't have two iPads. One of them's my mom's. I, I, I'm like, someone out there is going like, really, this guy's got guy's, Two iPads. Um, (laughs) This is not a message on consumerism. It's okay. Um, I want ice cream. I want it in a cone, not a cup. If I can't have it in the cone, then I'm going to pitch a fit. I want, you know, stomp. I want ice cream. I don't want to go there. I don't want to walk anymore. My legs are tired. I'm not going to go any further. This isn't fun anymore. I'm not going to walk. I'm going to right here, it's not okay. And it's like when I watch my kids, I'm like, they'll just all of a sudden dig in and stop. And even though I'm their dad, and even though I might be leading them uh, somewhere good, they will not hear me. I cannot get through to them. They will not accept change. And as adults, we do the same thing. You know, we'll be on vacation or even just a weekend getaway, and there's that pristine moment of all of like five minutes when it all comes together and you're like, you know, it's, it's just so wonderful and magical. It's like a picture and there's sprinklers as we're driving along and the sun is the right way. And okay, right here, God, this is the picture. This is what I want. Box this up. I want this and I want it all the time. This is what I've been aiming for in life. This, this is what I want. And we, we try and hold on to that moment or try and make life all about that moment or we finally get in our job. This is the balance sheet I want. I'm finally getting the ticket stub, the pay stub I want. We're there, God. Now just lock it in. Just, just lock it in and we're good. We finally arrive, God. You did your job. You got me to where I wanted to be. Now I'm okay. Hey, we finally found a church that we like. We don't want anything to change. We don't want the guy uh, up front to talk about missions. Our best friends might leave and move to another country or something. What's that gonna do to us? Make us feel guilty. You know, like, (laughs) we we all know that, right? Um, But we got rid of the give your life. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. We're anti-give your life away now, as of this morning. Are we willing to let God be God? God for his will to take the day and for us to walk with our hands open as difficult as it is by faith submitting every day that God I know I know the best place to be is right by your side I know I gotta be willing to walk into that which means I need to be willing to let things go but that's okay I'm not going to worry about it because you're going to take care of me. And let these things that I want to hold on to or, or even just time and place and space that I want to hold on to, let that not become an idol that I serve at a greater and higher uh, kind of way than, than you such that I stay put while you move on. And I let my God walk on without me um, let me not make an idol of my own will and Jonah multiple 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 times shows that he had his will in a lockbox and he was willing to do a lot of things but he was never really in this whole book willing to let his whole will be killed so that God could replace in it a humble obedience, um, a supple kind of willingness to go with God, to join God, to follow God. Um, and I'm, I'm, cha- I'm challenged by that. I'm crazy challenged by that. You guys know, um, have you ever read The Great Divorce? How many people here have read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? This is a great church. You're great people. I am in my happy place. Um, The Great Divorce is this kind of imaginary journey that C.S. Lewis kind of uses to kind of really get at the idea of sanctification. And there's this one ghost kind of in this place uh, between heaven and hell, and he's got this lizard on his shoulder. And if you read that whole passage, it's amazing. Kind of the angel of the Lord, the bright angel comes and and keeps asking, may I kill it? May I kill it? Never giving all sorts of rationale, um, just always saying, may I kill it? And the person with the lizard is kind of doing all this dance about, I don't know, I mean, isn't there another way? Can't we, you know, find the win-win? God, you're you're not very synergistic here. You know, you know what I mean? Like just hamming and hawing and then the lizard's like, he means it, he'll kill me. If you let him, he'll kill me and then what would you do without me? And, and there's this real kind of tug of war going on and then finally, uh, the person lets the angel of the Lord put his hand on and kill and break the back of this little lizard, throws the lizard down and the lizard for C.S. Lewis represented lust. Throws the lizard down, the lizard then morphs into and rebirths as a stallion. And the angel, uh, the person now, who's who's a type of an angel, the person now gets on the stallion and they go off to heaven. And and the picture here is the lusts, the wants, wishes, and commitment to my own self that keeps us from fully engaging God has to be killed, fully killed, baptism is that picture of death to self and then rising has to be fully killed but in its place becomes the stallion and lewis again is saying lust is the lizard the stallion is love see for lewis it was completely different than freud freud had love as just like a modicum of like intensity and lust was higher than love it was intense intensity See what I'm saying? Like on a spectrum of intensity, love is less than lust. Nod your head if you get that. Okay. That was Freud. Lewis had it the other way around. He said, no, lust is a deformed, weak version of the true thing, which is love. And lust is an anemic, weird, deformed creature. And when you kill it or sublimate it into what was created to be love the fullness the robustness of deep rich biblical godly sacrificial love this animal love is so much more powerful than this weak kind of deformed version called lust and so you see this really fascinating thing Lewis has it completely opposite than Freud does and so Lewis is like you kill this and then you can ride on the way it's supposed to be And when I read Jonah, man, I just, I tell you what, am I trying to work a win-win with God? And when God doesn't play, am I stomping my foot and saying, no, then I won't go on. It's better if I were to die. I mean, maybe we're not that melodramatic, right? But maybe we're saying the same thing by just putting our foot down and saying, I'm not okay with your plan. I'm not willing to follow. I'm not willing to obey. I know where that will go, God, because you're predictable and I got issues with that. Second thing, Jonah's anger. So the first thing is willingness to change, willingness to follow, willingness to submit to God's will. Second thing is Jonah's anger. So God brings up this I mean, this is a great picture, right? God brings up this vine. He's like, hey, how's that, Jonah? Jonah's like, it's good. I'm, I'm actually really happy. A little to the left. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, this is really helping me, God, you know? And God's like, okay, just wanted to check. And then here comes Wormy, or Hermy, Hermy, you know, whatever it is. And, and there goes the plant. And then God's like, ooh. Ooh, I, ooh, wow, that's really hot. How are you doing now, Jonah? And Jonah's like, um, Jonah's like, I'm pissed. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to use that word. I'm upset. I wanna die. And <laughs> Reading is the worst place in the world to live and I wanna <laughs> die. It's in and out, it's too far to walk to, you just kill me now, all right? <laughs> and God says to Jonah, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry at all? Jonah, what is going on with your anger? Why are you angry, frustrated, bitter, bothered? You know, the fascinating thing about this book of Jonah, maybe you've already picked up on it. Here's the last verse. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Question mark. I I don't know um, because I haven't checked but it might be the only book of the Bible that ends on a question. Someone in here has one of those personalities. In the next 10 minutes, you're going to be checking. Um, But to the best of my ability, it's the only book. It might be the only book of the Bible that ends on a question. And God is just, he's talking to Jonah. He's reasoning with Jonah. And God is showing the same compassion and patience with Jonah that he showed with Nineveh, right? God's character is predictable. That's a good thing. And so here he is with Jonah, being patient with him. He's like, Jonah, really? What? Why why all the anger? I give, I take away. I call you to preach. I allow people to repent. Why why, why are you angry? What is it in you that's allowing for this anger? We need to talk about this. There's something broken here. What's going on? And this is the question for me is, is God trying to talk to you through your emotion right now rather than outside of your emotion i think we fall into this trap of thinking emotion is some random thing we don't know why it happens circumstances happen and and we can't get an answer for that and so we table it at all and we're angry and then we go to god to talk about life and our situation and what we would have him do for us and the question i'm asking today is is god actually talking to you through your emotion that person you're so angry with is god actually trying to talk to you in the midst of that anger not just from outside that anger are the, 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 the financial kind of stresses that we're dealing with not just an accident over here, but maybe a part of the conversation that God is trying to have with us? In other words, is God's voice in the circumstance and talking to you through the circumstance, not just outside or alongside the circumstance? And I think it's a pretty provocative question. We don't really like to think that God might be the one behind the circumstances. Because if he was, we would be what? Angry. Uh, it says in Amos, you go back two books, and God actually says something mind-blowing. He's preaching uh, you know, prophetically to the people of Israelite, uh, Israel, and he's saying, I killed your people. I did this. I killed, and yet you did not return to me. And it's like, we, if we were the ones being talked to, we would be like, whoa, wait a second. We wouldn't even hear the, and yet you did not return to me part. We, we would not hear that. We would just stop, wait, wait, <laughs> pause, God. You did what? I take back all of the Chris Tomlin songs I've sung in the last year. I rescind it all. You did what to me? I, I am, I'm just so not okay with you that I, I can't even find the words, God. You're supposed to be on my side. You're supposed, you're supposed to be working for my will. You're supposed to be taking care of my comfort. You're supposed to be helping me along. You're the one I pray to. You're the one with all the strength, and you're supposed to be helping. And, and now I find out you're actually getting in the way of my comfort. We, I don't know that we have a theology robust enough to handle the full sovereignty of God. Dan Brosey, he used to go here, works for World Relief, one of the, one of the conversations, many conversations on a porch with him and several others in this church and we were talking about what did you learn in africa and he says you know i learned in africa that they have as much if not more to teach the western church than we do to teach them but we kind of think because they're poor we get this paternalistic feeling of of giving or we're taking care of them and we don't really dignify them to think that they're our peers or that they have value and made in the image of god and therefore they have something to teach us I mean, it's weird how that mind game goes, right? But he goes, they do, and the the biggest thing they have to teach us is they have a theology of suffering. And Dan said, Americans do not have a theology of suffering. We don't even have a category for it. And that's what I'm trying to say here is if we really thought God was a part of our suffering, what would that do to explode our categories? And what I'm saying here is, In Jonah, the second thing I see is that God was working on and through Jonah's bitterness and his frustration and his anger. And so are we willing today to take out our bitterness, our anger, our frustration, maybe even our bitterness with God, and to put it out and say, okay, I'm I'm willing to have this conversation i 'm i 'm hurt even i 'm tired even god but i I'm, I'm, I know that somehow it 's about your will and not mine and and that we have to be on the same page here and that means i got to come into this conversation and hear you and learn about what it is you 're doing and that it 's still okay and that you have me and that you love me and even though i 'm frustrated and bitter and hurt. I'm willing to put it here and let you talk to me about my emotion and about my circumstance, not just have a conversation aside and apart from my emotion and my circumstance. Third thing. And maybe this one's a little bit more philosophical, so, you know, strap yourself in. Jonah was not on the same page with God with regard to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the bad guys. Jonah does not like the Ninevites. He doesn't like them. He doesn't have empathy for them. He doesn't care for them. He doesn't want to care for them. Jonah's against the Ninevites. And Jonah's desire was that he... And God would together, in a united way, be against the Ninevites. Here's the, th- here's the thought. There's two forms of pride. The obvious one is standing against God like Satan did. the The, the archetypal form of pride that we see in Scripture is kind of... Satan or, or the devil tempting or, or what the devil did, where you look at God and you flat reject God um, for your own glory, your desire to have your own glory and to exalt yourself. So God gets diminished, you get exalted. That's the agenda. And that right there is the foundational break in, in this, this whole world order, right? That's idolatry. It's the sin of pride. Um, We understand that, don't we? We might not always see it, but we understand it. Is that fair? Here's the second form of pride. It's not being against God, but it's going to an extreme of trying to be with God against other people. You know, I've said it before, nothing draws two people together closer than a, a common enemy. You can see a husband and wife, they can be fighting like cats and dogs, and then all of a sudden there's a boss at work or an in-law or somebody that they jointly decide they're really angry at, and then all of a sudden the husband and wife are like doing better than they've ever done. And you're like, what happened there? And there's a shared common powerful bond in having the same enemy it's why the clique in high school that's immature will get so into gossip and slander and and the like because it makes that click feel so united and intimate and in solidarity to have the teacher they hate, the group they hate that they stand against, or the person that they're going to bully or torture or torment or whatever, that they equally dislike. And it gives this unbelievable sense of solidarity and power to that group. And, and we see it, and I, we've, we've experienced it, we've been a part of it on one side or the other. We do that with God there's the bad guy or the bad guys out there and in our relationship with god when we're reading our bible and praying with god we get a sense of how how happy god must be with us and we get a sense of how loving god really is and we internalize it as loving toward me and and in all of this intimacy As I look out and have someone I dislike or an enemy, I begin to pull God into that. And of course, God sees that person the same way I do. And in doing so, God and I together jointly judge or feel about this person in this way. The Pharisees did that. Jesus' disciples even wanted to... Who's going to be on the left of you, Jesus? Who's going to be on the right of you? We're, we're, we're jockeying for intimacy. And those people in that town, they don't like you? Do you want us to curse them? We'll curse them. We got, we got, we got this one. You just give the word, Jesus. Us, you, all of us, we'll take on the world together. We even see it with Jesus' disciples. and And you get this... Interesting thing that somehow, sometimes, an immature intimacy with God misses the fact that the same love and compassion He has for Jonah, He's willing to have for the Ninevites. The same love and compassion and forbearance and forgiveness He's willing to have for you, He's also willing to have for your in law. The same compassion He has for Republicans, He's willing to have for Democrats. That God is love, and God so loved the world that God always believes in the potential redemption or redemptibility of broken and fallen people. God loves people. And the question is do I have love for people? Do I believe in the potential redemptibility of each and every person? Do I believe that they can be forgiven or saved or reconciled with God? Do I hope for it? Do I long for it? Do I understand that grace takes people who don't deserve it and makes them these amazing things? Or do I allow myself to get sucked into this false me and God intimacy where I begin to pull God down and force him into seeing the or I think I'm forcing him into seeing the world the way I see it and there's a pride in that and there's an idolatry in that of of forcing God to have to be less loving and less redemptive, and less gracious, and less forgiving, and make him more into my own image, so that it can be me and my big brother, and we got, we got you. We, we got, we know you're, we know you're bad, and we're against you, and you know what? We're so intimate, me and God, and we're so against you, that we must be so good, and you must be so bad, did it you, you actually deserve it when I go tell other Christians that they need to pray f- against you. Or I tell them the bad things that you're doing. Or I go looking for you to do more bad. There Ken goes again. He's got imperfections. You know what? He even irritates me. I don't think he's fully mature yet. <laughs> Pastors should be fully mature. I don't really like this guy. God, oh God, you agree that he's not fully mature? Oh, that baptizes it then. We should be against him. Let's go find other people for our little against club because we're on a spiritual crusade now. And since you're with me, God, then that means this must be blessed And it's your will that we bring judgment and pain and againstness into this person's life because I see something in there that's off. And the whole time it's like, um, do you realize all of us are off? And the reason that you can feel intimacy with God is because God is okay accepting you as off. Off he's got enough grace for you to be off and for him to still love you. But you see, that goes for me and for you and the boss and the Democrat or Republican. And so Jonah didn't get that intimacy with God comes in getting excited about the redemptive plan of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. And that is exciting. The gospel is the source of our intimacy with God when we join in that good news. And our intimacy doesn't come by having a shared enemy, but having the Savior reconciling us to God so that even though we're unjust, we can stand next to God as if we were just. Even though we were prodigal sons, we can now come back and know the love of a father who cares about us and loves us and will take care of us and will sustain us. And so our intimacy comes in us coming up to God's level and being transformed by love and looking at the world and having a vision or a dream of love, not in segmenting it and taking our childish kind of emotions and saying, God, I only want this if you'll descend down to my level and join in my games that allow me to feel big and to have a form of pride that's oh so subtle. So are you willing to accept change by following God's plan instead of aiming for some final destination that you've created in your mind as the chief end of what you're about in this life? Number two, what if God is actually working through your emotions? That they're not an accident or a mistake, but that he's actually trying to talk to you through your fear, through your worry, your doubt, your concern, your bitterness, your hatred, your self-pity? And lastly, are we willing to shed our againstness and our craving for a false sense of intimacy with God around our kind of patterns to be made more in the likeness of Christ who walked up to Jerusalem and said, man, I long for this city. You guys are so like harassed. It's like a mother hen. I just wish I could scoop you all up. I just, I love and I want redemption to come. And are we willing To kind of grow into a maturity that joins jesus in that or are we going to stay at the god do you want us to nuke him level so this morning who have you so put in a bad category that you've spiritualized it and baptized it that it's okay for you to be against this group who is your your ninevites who is that person And do you need to lay that down today and be willing to let that person be messy? There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it. And they're dangerous. I'm gonna pray for us, and then uh, we're gonna take the offering and do special music, and it's gonna kick right to a movie, a video on uh, Uganda. Um, But without, yeah, without, without, Let's just be transparent, you know? So no rhetoric, no arm twisting. I just, I, just lay it in front of God. Father, you search hearts, you search minds, and you know truth. We hide our hearts, we guard our minds, we keep our will to ourself, and, and I don't know that we see things always quite accurately in the way that they really are. Our motives run us from behind more than than kind of in front where we can see them. And so, God, we come in as messy people, as sinful people, as people who are committed to our own way, as lost people, confused people, even hurt people who are crying out to you. In all of this, we need you. In all of this, nothing else will do except you. This morning, God, strip us bare. Please show us the areas where we're still holding on and clinging to the very things we need to let go. Give us a joy in your character being fixed. Give us a joy that you are gracious and loving. Give us the perseverance and the temperament to handle the fact that life is in flux and it will change but knowing all the while that we can have joy even in the midst of trials and that our true intimacy and our true satisfaction in life is not going to come from being static or having a bunch of stuff, but having a relationship with you like a son or a daughter that gets to be with the Father, it's, it's that relationship and that love that will drive the only thing that can drive. We love you, guys. Jesus name